0: Uh, So Dara reached out to us, I want to say it was probably last summer or early, early summer, late spring of last year.
1: That's Jennifer Goss, a program manager at Echoes and Reflections, a premier source for Holocaust educational materials.
0: Uh, And mentioned that she was looking into issues related to contemporary anti-Semitism.
1: She's talking about Dara Horn a Jewish author who wrote an essay for the May 2023 issue of The Atlantic called Is Holocaust Education Making Anti-Semitism Worse? With the subtitle, Using Dead Jews as Symbols Isn't Helping Living Ones.
0: And was curious how we taught about that topic, if we taught about that topic, um, and what what our thoughts were on the rise in anti-Semitism that the 2021 ADL
1: audit of anti Semitic incidents showed. Goss had this to say about Horn's portrayal of echoes and reflections in the essay.
0: I mean, truthfully, I was quite frustrated because several of the things that we had talked about that I felt put Holocaust education as well as the work of echoes and reflections around issues of not only contemporary anti Semitism, but also Jewish way of life were left out of the article because they didn't support the thesis. Echoes and Reflections fundamentally feels that teaching students about life before the Holocaust and the diversity and richness of Jewish communities is an important part of the educational process, uh, and so that was not included. Uh, she had brief mention of the fact that we do work uh, in the realm of you know teaching about anti-Semitism in contemporary society, but it wasn't the focal point that I thought it would be
1: specifically. Horn is critical of a survey echoes and Reflections conducted to understand both the purpose and impact of current Holocaust education in the United States. Goss says Horn's characterization of the survey was inaccurate and somewhat misleading. Um, And so that was quite frustrating as well. So
0: overall, I was really disappointed. Um, I felt like the article did Holocaust education and the work of the
1: wonderful organizations included in the article a disservice by not presenting the full story. Goss also told me that Horn's critiques of other museums around the country, like the Illinois Holocaust Museum in Skokie, were also a bit unfair.
0: You know, I think some of the uh, commentary on, you know, the universal moral approach to Holocaust education, like trying to, you know, make Jews seem like everyone else and t- kind of take away their Jewishness to make them a moral lesson for all. Is really not the approach um, that the organizations that were mentioned in that survey take. Um, You know, I all individuals that I, you know, know that were mentioned in the article very much believe in giving students exposure to the diversity and richness of Jewish life before the Holocaust. And, you know, while she mentioned that the Illinois Museum doesn't give an extended history of anti-Semitism they do give some background on what life was like for jews prior to the holocaust
2: at the museum when we were uh, developing our core holocaust exhibition
1: that's kelly zaney the senior vice president of education and exhibitions at the illinois holocaust museum in skokie
2: we made a very conscious decision not to talk about two thousand plus years of anti-Semitism." That was my quote. What I then said in context was because we did not want to start an exhibition in which we immediately victimized the Jewish people, we wanted to create an exhibition that immediately gave the Jewish people agency and a dignity, and spoke to the richness and vitality of Jewish life prior to the Holocaust.
1: Here, Zaney talks about the experience of working with the fact-checkers at The Atlantic.
2: One of the editors of the, of the article of The Atlantic who would ask questions such as, you know, uh, Dara's quoted you as saying, is that correct? And that was kind of my first red flag.
1: <laughs> what did you realize was happening in this article while you were on the phone with The Atlantic?
2: being quoted saying things that I absolutely didn't say um, and asking to put context to my quotes.
1: But Zany says that never happened, and she has a theory as to why.
2: Both myself and my colleagues were taken out of context to what felt like to fit her thesis.
1: In Skokie, Horn was particularly critical of the use of virtual reality and holograms, But Zaney says that this technology actually offers survivors and their stories a sense of permanence and agency that they couldn't have otherwise.
2: And our survivors are so proud of those projects. And so in some ways it was heartbreaking, right? They put so much of themselves into these projects, into the gift of sh- and vulnerability of sharing their story, and to have it besmirched was just was
1: heartbreaking. I asked Zaini about the museum's overall reaction to the piece. She shared that they were frustrated, sad, and disheartened, particularly for their docents, who work very hard to lead comprehensive and dynamic tours. But she also shared that Skokie and other museums around the country are concerned about the impact this essay could have on Holocaust education and anti-Semitism.
2: One of the concerning parts of the article that stuck to me is that could this article now be used for reasons that Holocaust mandates and education shouldn't be taught? That's, That's scarier than anything else.
1: I'm Sam Futrell, and you're listening to Content to Classroom, a Virginia Council for the Social Studies podcast. For this episode, we are going to divert from our normal interview format just a little bit because we are going to be discussing an article today. The article was run uh, in the May 2023 issue of The Atlantic, and the article is called Is Holocaust Education Making Anti-Semitism Worse? with the subtitle, Using Dead Jews as Symbols Isn't Helping Living Ones. So today I have with me um, Matt Simpson from the Virginia Holocaust Museum, and he is going to help me sort of recap this article and talk about how we feel about this, since both of us are Holocaust educators. So Matt, welcome. Uh, Yeah,
3: thank you for having
1: me. Do you want to tell everybody just like what you do at the Virginia Holocaust Museum?
3: Sure. Uh, My title is Director of Guest Services, uh, which is kind of misleading. I, I do... A good bit on the education side, but one of the big things that I do is schedule tours and lead tours for student groups and you know, other uh, church groups, things like that. Um, so I have a pretty good familiarity with how students interact with the subject and uh, how they respond to it and why I think it works and what I think works.
1: Yeah, and Matt has led my students on many tours over the years, um, so that's actually why I ended up contacting him because sort of the structure of this article that Dara Horn has written for The Atlantic here is that she goes through Holocaust education in three parts. One, the museum makers, uh, two curriculum makers, and then three teachers. And so she assesses how each of those groups educate the public, students etc about the holocaust and the impact that she believes that that is having on the united states and anti-semitism in general and so matt was like perfect for this episode because he has led my students on so many tours of this museum and is kind of you know an institution in holocaust education (laughs) here in virginia um so how i thought this episode would go is Kind of a snake draft style thing. I thought we would start by picking a few things that we liked about the article because you know, we should be critical, but at the same time, I think there are good points that are made. But I think both of us have a lot of criticisms to make yeah, as one well. Yeah, so we'll sort of go back and forth and share kind of our, our main hits in terms of things that we agreed with from the article. And then we'll go back and forth on things that we disagreed with. Does that sound good, Matt? That mm-hmm. sounds good. OK, perfect. OK, so I'll start. And I think the first thing that I want to say is that I do appreciate that Dara Horn is leading with inquiry here. The title is a question, mm-hmm. right? And there are many questions that are asked throughout the article. And, you know, in education, we do teach, you know, that there are no bad questions because if you are asking questions, then hopefully you're leading with curiosity and you are open to different answers, right? That's what we hope. At one point, she asks, I knew how this facelift crowd had suffered and died, but did that count as remembering them? Like when talking about how she was looking at sort of a VR simulation of um, Auschwitz. And I think that's a good question to ask, right? Like, I mean, we do want to ask, like, how is memory important in public history education?
3: Yeah, I mean, it, it, and she's right. She knows she's right. Uh, that I think because a lot of students, a lot of people get maybe an introduction or, or what they think, might think is a comprehensive idea of what the Holocaust is from movies and TV shows. They're getting beginnings of like, here's the happiness. Here come the bad guys. Here's the terrible things the bad guys do. And of course, typically here, uh, the Americans come in, but of course, you know, it's the allies, the good guys, uh, good guys win, bad guys lose, happy ending. So they get a very um, Disney, so to speak, uh, uh, idea of what the Holocaust is, and then our job is to flesh that out and be like, okay, you kind of got the basics, Um, here's how to contextualize it. And so I think she's right that we do or people can fall into the trap of car- of caricature, that there needs to be a more 3D, so to speak, view of the subject matter and of the people both as perpetrators and victims.
1: Yeah, and I think and that's like another thing that I had to was just, you know, making sure that we are seeing humanity on both sides because there's the human like aspect of obviously the victims of this like terrible systematic horror but there is also the humanity of the perpetrators and that that is also part of human nature yeah. and that truly like anyone could fall in within that spectrum and that there is a spectrum of that humanity and also that there are choices being made deliberate choices Mm -hmm. by the perpetrators as well because if we try to make them into monsters so to speak it dehumanizes them and actually sort of makes the choices that they made reductive they don't have the responsibility that they actually do have if we kind of do right. that to them, right? right?
3: There's a great book about this. I'll try not to do that too often. Here's a book for this, but <laughs> the, maybe the most important American work about the Holocaust is called Ordinary Men. Mm-hmm. Chris Browning, professor, retired professor at UNC, who looked at a killing battalion and who they were, and the title gives away the ending. These are ordinary people. These are humans doing this to humans. It's an important work and, and deals with a lot of that.
1: So what's your next one, your next thing that you mm-hmm. like? It's kind of a layup,
3: I guess, um, because I'm agreeing with her agreement on something. But the the, the do's and don'ts, the way she lays it out, are, I think are really good and important because there are traps that teachers fall into or educators fall into. For example, reenactment is a big one. She gives the example, and I don't like the way she makes the point, but of taping the floor in a rectangle, the dimensions of a boxcar and crowding students into it or making um, half the class Jews, half the class Nazis. Uh, recreation is... Is, is discouraged for exactly that reason. Um, and so I like that she acknowledges that because I can tell at least, you know, she's thinking about the right paths to take on this. But again, I end with frustration because it, she doesn't offer any, here's what we should do instead.
1: And even that, and you sort of um, alluded to this, but listing these do's and don'ts, these are not things she came up with. These are actually like she is talking to a Holocaust educator about Mm -hmm. this and the Holocaust educator is listening to the do's and don'ts. And then she's sort of affirming them in the article. I will also just acknowledge, like from the top here, that I do think the intent was probably good, like behind this article. I genuinely doubt that she is trying to openly attack anyone here, like Holocaust educators, and that her goal was to actually, you know, make Holocaust education better in some capacity so I just want to acknowledge that too Um, she does
3: sympathize I think or tries to in her own way with teachers who have their hands tied as far as what they can and can't say obvious points that they really want to make but can't about this because they're then accused and she mentions this of of pushing an agenda um, which is such a loaded word now and, and means everything and nothing all the time somehow
1: Well, we know nothing about that in Virginia. So, I mean, you know, none of us have ever experienced that as educators in Virginia. Um, (laughs) So, uh, all right. Let's start sort of drafting our things that we disagreed with in the article. I will go first. Uh, So I'm just going to call this one out because it is, of course, the thing that resonated with me the most as a secondary educator in the United States. I think that her tone towards educators is incredibly dismissive, especially in regards to uh, just, I'm just going to say it. I think she, it gave me the vibe that she thinks teachers are stupid. Here's a quote that like really, I think, captured that tone that is, again, throughout the article. So she says, apparently... Some teachers need to be told not to make students role-play Nazis versus Jews in class or not to put masking tape on the floor in the exact dimensions of a boxcar in order to cram 200 students into it. Mm. Just the structure of that sentence, I can feel her frustration, and I do understand where that frustration is coming from if she genuinely perceives that to be something that is actively happening in the United States, right? But... I just don't think that that is a common practice anymore in education. I think it has been disproven as an effective way to teach this history or to build any sort of empathy among students. And I would be genuinely surprised to hear um, that a majority of teachers are doing this actively now.
3: I mean, that, yeah, that use of apparently. Yes. Like, there's no, there's no need to word it that way. Mm-hmm. Apparently, some teachers need to be told. And, and she, honestly, yeah, condescends throughout mm. uh, both about uh, educators in the classroom, educators in museums. She, I think, sees them as trying. You're trying their best. The whole thing feels like a literary pat on the head, like oh, you gave it a shot, kind of. And yeah, it, it is condescending, and I, I think a huge disservice to how hard teachers like yourself work at making this resonate in a meaningful and uh, uh, actual, honest way. Mine is the same on the museum side. Mm-hmm. Uh, when she talks about docents, you know, when she, talk, she, she condescends when, Jew, when she says, well, one of the docents says, are Jews a religion or a nationality? Uh, which she tisks at. How, how else do you phrase it? Be, because one thing you're not taking into account, the very little time that both teachers or museums have to talk about this. You know, In our case, we have roughly two hours to cover this. Are we going back to, to ancient Egypt? Are we going to talk about the pharaoh and still somehow make it to Dachau in April of 45? Uh, there's, it's just, she knows that she's making a point that can't necessarily be countered because we don't have infinite time and infinite space. She is lobbing softballs to herself without um, the context of why these things happen, why there is a finite period and we have to hit the most significant points. You know, the whole crux of this article is a Holocaust education making anti-Semitism worse, which obviously I disagree with. She seems to imply throughout that we should, why aren't we making anti-Semitism better? We're called the Virginia Holocaust Museum. We were established and obviously we've branched and we've grown to teach the history of the Holocaust. And I tell students, you know, this isn't a history lesson, it's a warning. And we talk about things like that to give it a context. But uh, we are a Holocaust museum. The Skokie Museum is a Holocaust museum. Seattle is a Holocaust museum. So I think it's it's unfair and, and low-hanging fruit.
1: Yeah, I, I completely agree, especially in regards to, again, that diction that she chooses, yeah. slouchy, disengage. And the onus is again put on the museum educators that they are supposed to be the ones engaging kids. And at the same time, throughout the article, she is critical of any sort of maybe more dynamic use of like museum spaces because those might be too flashy. And again, it's complicated. So yeah. I can understand like part of where she's coming from. But at the same time, it is hard to strike a tone with a seventh grader between somber and engaging it is very difficult difficult. it is very difficult and so i just want to go to my next one which is kind of something that you mentioned just now the title of this article yeah (laughs) again the title of the article if you didn't hear this is holocaust education making anti-semitism worse subtitle using dead jews as symbols isn't helping living ones this is clickbait. I am shocked that The Atlantic ran this title. I'm shocked that The Atlantic ran this article in general, but this is absolutely inappropriate in terms of maybe the question itself is, I think, okay, but the subtitle especially think is really derogatory and using that very much like clickbait language that someone is going to definitely want to read this because they do want to know well hey is holocaust education making anti-semitism worse how are educators using dead jews in the classroom i didn't know that they were doing that you know and it's just Again, that diction is chosen to be provocative. And she actually says that in the article. And I think that that's really exploitive yeah. of this whole topic. And she's actually the one using dead Jewish people like to promote some sort of, I don't want to say agenda, but some sort of argument here that I think is has a lot of flaws. Yeah.
3: Yes, the title. I joked with you about that this should be on BuzzFeed. This mm-hmm. should be 15 ways American Holocaust education is making anti-Semitism worse. The, what, the fact that she separates it, which you talked about at the top, um, is into teachers and then museums. and It purposefully ignores the fact that those are not separate things. That's the reason you and I know each other. This is a collaborative effort between places like museums and the classroom and that's how holocaust education becomes fully formed and becomes better it's not just the classroom or just the museum it's a collaboration between the two and by separating it she helps her point but not the actual point about holocaust education or holocaust education at all so yeah in a vacuum if you take just one thing at a time yeah it's not a a full holocaust education that's why museums exist and we don't cover everything because classrooms exist.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it 100% is a collaborative effort. I, this is another one of my um, critiques of it, which is just that if she does understand how public education works in the United States, it is unclear in this article. Yeah. Because as we know, states issue standards to social studies educators uh, that they are required to cover in class. Of course, we can expand on that. They are sort of the scaffolding, and then teachers are meant to fill that in um, with uh, the content uh, that they're teaching in their classrooms, obviously um, done through lesson plans that are more tailored to the students, of course. But at the same time, I teach, for example, seventh grade, and I teach what we might call a U.S. 2 course in Virginia. And U.S. 2 covering potentially part of the Civil War is like a review all the way to, you know, modern day. So we are covering, I mean, hundreds of topics in a year. The kids will be learning all of this stuff, not necessarily for the first time, because of course we do have cycling inside of Virginia um, SOLs, but still really... A lot of new stuff is being covered in their classes, and truly, the teaching of the Holocaust in my class is really just a few bullet points yeah. on a many, many page uh, SOL doc. While I understand that, of course, you know we want to be as sensitive and as comprehensive as we can about this topic, to what you said. You know, we have so much to cover in our classes. And that's why we bring our kids to the Virginia Holocaust Museum because it helps supplement that, right? Right. And it helps us, like, yeah, yeah, it helps us collaborate and work together so that there is more that they can do in two hours here than we can do in probably two weeks in my classroom. She has a quote where she was talking to some Texas teachers. And as she's talking to the Texas teachers, She's asking them something along the lines of, well, why don't you teach the civil rights in your class? And one, I'm unfamiliar with like the Texas standards of learning, but if she were to ask me that, I would say, well, I do teach civil rights in my yes. class. That is one of the many other topics that we teach throughout the year. Yeah,
3: it's disingenuous to, to to point out what people aren't teaching. Like I was talking to one of my colleagues about this who knows more about the... Uh, sols than i do uh, and she her estimate was that they get teachers public school teachers get approximately two days to do this mm-hmm. so um, she talks about how uh in in 2016 only seven states required holocaust education in the past seven years 18 more have passed holocaust ed- education mandates and that's presented implicitly as a negative because what is your alternative to not mandate it Is is anti-Semitism going to get better? Is Holocaust education going to get better by it disappearing?
1: Yeah. I mean, if you want to talk about Holocaust denial, if we stop teaching the Holocaust, why wouldn't anyone deny it when they're getting into like their adulthood? You know what I mean? Like, I don't, if it's not something that is seen as a priority in secondary education, then why wouldn't people try to deny it when they get older? So one of my next things that I disagreed with in the article, I suppose it's not something that I disagreed with, but just a general flaw that I would like to name out loud, is what I consider to be very flawed lines of logic. Um, For example, she says, in the language I often encountered in Holocaust education resources, people who lived through, through the Holocaust were neatly categorized as perpetrators, victims, bystanders, or upstanders. Jewish resistors, though, were rarely classified as upstanders. A Jewish resistor who was mentioned in the Take a Stand Center was a notable exception. Then she continues on to say it seems that only jews the unspoken assumption went were not supposed to stand up for themselves but she just mentioned a jewish person that was highlighted in that same center as an example of a jewish person who stood up for jews they are sentences apart from each other and yet, she is trying to make this argument that this is something that is not emphasized um, in museums across the country. And yes, I mean, perhaps, maybe, again, all of us could always do better, right? Like in any capacity, of course. But at the same time, um, it seems like here, maybe, maybe, if I'm being generous, maybe her argument is that it was just one individual. Well, Earlier, she said a best practice was to highlight individuals mm-hmm. as examples of larger trends, like within the Holocaust. So it seems like that's what the museum was doing.
3: She's writing as though people, any museum rather, doesn't have an exhibit on partisans, for example. Of course they do. We do. Uh, that, that Jews, she's feeding into the, the misconception that does exist. She's right about this. It does exist that Jews went like lambs to the slaughter. And an effort in Holocaust education is to show that that is not the case.
1: So I feel like I've hogged a few. No, so what's your uh, next
3: one? Uh, the, right, so she, she talks about encountering, uh, I believe it's in Skokie, um, a VR uh, lecture, such as is there a question and answer um, with a survivor. And she's frustrated by the hologram's response to her questions. Uh, she asks about joy. I believe it's with this uh, uh, survivor, uh, in, again, in Skokie. And she's not happy with the answer. And that, again, is absurd, because you're not talking to a person, you're talking to a hologram. But what is your proposal for a better way to preserve this? Because again, she seems to be existing, or this article does, in a world where time doesn't. Yeah. We are losing survivors. That's the reality. The, you know I tell students when I talk to them, when y'all are my age, I'm nearly 40, and even well before the, these. You know, middle and high school students get to be my age, survivors are going to be gone. That's just the way it is. That's, un- that, that, you know, I, I hate it, but, you know, it's not a, a fun thing to think about, but it's reality. So then we have to accept that as reality. Well, how do we preserve it? And we do it through historically, through oral histories written and recorded. But this is a, a better way because you're at least seeing the person. And yeah, they can give limited answers, but what is your solution? And then she argues seemingly against it in general. And I'm not saying that, and again, relies on the fact that there's no right answer to this. Mm -hmm. Um, She talks about taking a VR uh, uh, deportation, the headset, and she's on a a train car. And that is problematic because that's recreation. But again, I just sit here waiting for alternatives the entirety of the time. Uh, And I'm not opposed to the use of VR. And maybe I'm close to the subject because, for example, the one that we're going to be doing here with a survivor whose name is Helena Zim, I know Helena very well, so I have a personal relationship to her. Um, but you, you talk about students being slouchy and disengaged, and she seems it. She, she's like it seems like a video game. That's what virtual reality is now. That's what video games are now. So yeah, you're right. But I don't think you're making the point you think you're making.
1: Like you said, we are losing survivors, and if you want to talk about something that is really cool that students would get really interested in. It would be looking at a hologram and being yeah. able to interact with it. Absolutely. Like That is, I think, something that they would engage in, not just because it is like a very cool use of technology, but again, because anytime time that students are in the room with a survivor, things become more personal to them. And I don't want to use the term coming alive, but it is, I suppose, like a primary source living right there in front of you, right? Yes. And so it, it does, like the, there's a connection there that I think cannot be recreated in many other ways. Yeah, there's, yeah, I mean,
3: yeah, I think we're on the same page here. There, there, there isn't a perfect way to do it. We're, we're dealing with, you know, doing the best we can or what ifs and uh, suppositions uh, as opposed to concrete right and wrongs. Uh, And I think she tries to exist in this gray area where she's not providing anything, uh, what could be better best practices, so to speak.
1: So my next one I think that I want to jump to is her use of anecdotal evidence Mm -hmm. to support really big generalizations, um, specifically about American society. So at one point she says... Quote, the Skokie Museum was built because of a Nazi march that never happened, but this more recent actual anti-Semitic violence, which happened near or even inside these museums, rarely came up in my conversations with educators about the Holocaust's contemporary relevance. In fact, with the exception of Kennedy and, I'm sorry, uh, Regalburu? I think that's um, right, yeah. Okay, excuse me if I'm saying that wrong, but uh, no one I spoke with mentioned these anti-Semitic attacks at all. The absence of proof is not proof, okay, for one thing. Okay, so the her, absence of yeah. you, you know, her, talking to a few people and saying, well, they didn't bring it up, that's not proof that none of us are talking about right. this. Okay, so that's number one. And then number two, this is, this is her discussions with a few people, and she is using it to essentially make the argument that no one in museums... Curriculum writers or educators are talking about anti-Semitism right now. You cannot make that jump. I mean, it is just absolutely ridiculous.
3: I would at least hope there are interviews that didn't make the cut because it didn't fit what she was going for here. Because I know we're not the only museum that talks about anti-Semitism and um, uh, minority, uh, race-based, hate-based extremism and violence across the board. She intentionally leaves out places that do. I know for a fact that she knows about the National Museum of American Jewish History in New York City, formerly the Museum of Jewish Heritage. That is a very well-known, huge, modern museum that does talk about the Holocaust, but goes way beyond that. How there is no mention of that in this article seems willful and intentional in keeping her argument sort of propped up uh, because I think she recognizes that it would blow apart a lot of this. There are museums that do this, and even Holocaust museums do this. We do this. Uh, So that's something that stuck out to me throughout. In the back of my head, I was constantly like, what about the Museum of Jewish Heritage? She talks about the Museum of Tolerance in L.A., and they do talk about modern anti-Semitism, and I think she does at least touch on the fact that they do, but somehow uses it as proof uh, that other places don't. Uh, Like, this is some random unicorn.
1: Yeah, it's a lie of omission. I mean, and I think that that is... I mean, I'm not a journalist, but it seems like that journalism, in my opinion, to uh, portray everything this way.
3: So my next one is, it's not really semantics, but kind of. Uh, Early on in in uh, establishing her argument, she says, the uh, bedrock assumption that has endured for nearly half a century is that learning about the Holocaust inoculates people against anti-Semitism, but it doesn't. Whose assumption? Uh, Dara Horn, I guess. So again... Implicit is that everyone is agreeing, right? We all agree. This is why we started talking about the Holocaust. Claude Lanzmann's show was to stop modern anti-Semitism. The Meryl Streep miniseries in the 70s was to stop modern anti-Semitism. Uh, you know, I'm just picking out things that have become major moments in Holocaust study, early, especially early on. Who announced that that was the bedrock assumption? It was, at least initially, I think, simply to not let the Holocaust disappear the way Armenia has. Uh, or even more simply, to document that it happened, that this occurred in Nazi-occupied Europe. So I, I think it's unfair and untrue to say that the bedrock assumption, again, using her words, the bedrock assumption was that it inoculates people against being hateful. No, it doesn't. We know that. That's a simple thing. I mean, nuh essentially works as a counter <laughs> to that point.
1: And it might be the hope. Obviously... Anytime we are teaching history in the classroom, the hope is that students are learning from it. But what the students take away from the facts that we present them in the classroom is up to them. Otherwise, we would just be indoctrinating them. We are teaching our students you know, how to think, not what to think, but right. we are teaching them facts, and we are teaching them true history, and even when that history is really hard. I don't understand like how She expects us to solve anti-Semitism through simply Holocaust education. How do you stop racism in general through education? You hope that it helps and you hope that, you know, that logically, like, students will be able to connect, that there is illogic, there is hate, like, rooted in those ideas and that they don't want to be a part of that but they have to make that choice for themselves. We can't make that choice for them. So at one point in the reading, she explains how the emergence of Holocaust education in the 1970s was mostly through a moralistic design. And then she begins talking about how this is still done today, but she doesn't provide any evidence To my study of the article, we both said we have read it about five Mm -hmm. times each, you know, she doesn't provide any evidence that supports that current Holocaust education is moralistic. To my knowledge, that is not what teachers are doing in the classroom. It's not what I see happening in museums. And to support this, she references a British Holocaust educator. He says, much Holocaust education, Prince's, and indeed much history teaching in general, is designed to socialize young people into certain cultural norms and to teach predetermined lessons that, it is claimed, are inherent in the past. I do not think that is what most history educators in the United States are trying to do.
3: No. I think that... um... It's part of it because it, it it has to be, and it should be. I mean, the, the moral, you know, we have a sign up front, and I think we like have a poster in the shop says, it is not enough to be compassionate, you must act. Mm-hmm. And I think that's from the, the Talmud, I'm not sure, but in any event. Um, like, that piece, of course, has to exist there because there is a why to the importance of teaching the history of the Holocaust. Of course there is. Um, we do hope that they take, uh, that students take, um, become a more well-rounded person morally, but I think the goal, um, at least as much as that, is that they become critical thinkers themselves. My my next one, again, big picture, but using a specific example, and one of the don'ts is discouraging the use of the diary of a young girl, and again, so I disagree with that wholeheartedly, because this article again seems to argue about a, a full picture of who Jews are, and the reason given for not using Diary of a Young Girl, you know Anne Frank's journal diary, is that it's not specifically about the Holocaust. Well, your whole argument here is that is about anti-Semitism, not the Holocaust, and you talk about wanting a more full picture of Jewish life, and you talk she talks at the end about wanting this virtual reality tour where you hear from a rabbi and you see a Torah, a scribe creating a Torah and you see a bar mitzvah. And then, so you want these things, which obviously don't fit, Uh, they would get teachers fired immediately. Um, But then you're discouraging the use of a book that does exactly that in a really relatable way, Um, I think probably especially for young girls. Because Anne Frank isn't talking about the Holocaust, which, you know, to be in the semantics, no one calls it the Holocaust until like 48 anyway she's talking about what her life was like. So you want people to have a a picture of Jewish life pre-war? Wouldn't that be a great place to start? And written by a 12-year-old that's exactly the audience you're seeing in these museums.
1: And also, I mean, the Holocaust is more than just the final solution. So, I mean, when we talk about the Holocaust, we are talking about the process of like discrimination that leads to ghettoization, that leads to concentration camps, and Diary of a Young Girl goes into many of the the stages of genocide, right? One of the things that I think a diary of a young girl is really effective for my students. I've used it um, in the past in my classes, is humanizing these people, mm-hmm. like who can sometimes just become a number, like in the classroom, right? If you're talking about just the Jewish people who were killed in the Holocaust, we're talking more than six million. That number is very difficult for students to conceptualize, but reading Anne Anne Frank's diary, or a diary of a young girl, is a way for them to connect and understand that this was a human being who (laughs) lived. And... In that as well, I think they find a lot of similarities between her and them. And that is, I think, valuable for them when they are, again, trying to wrap their head around something that is incredibly complex, difficult to understand, and sometimes almost difficult to even believe happened like within a few decades ago, you know. My next one is what I would characterize as a misrepresentation of Echoes and Reflections, and particularly a research study that Echoes and Reflections did, which was a U.S. college survey. And kind of some of the central questions of the survey are, what is the purpose of the Holocaust education in today's high schools? Can it help prepare students to challenge hate and prejudice when they see it? What it seems like Dara Horne is doing with the survey in her piece of writing, seems to me to be arguing that the survey done by Echoes and Reflections was actually done to try to prevent bullying.
3: Mm.
1: Actually, in the survey, um, bullying is mentioned. Like, that word Mm. is used. And, And they use it in the survey as a example for the students. So the students are presented with a bullying scenario and students with Holocaust education reported being more likely to offer help and were 50% less likely to do nothing and stay out of it. Uh, But what the key finding and takeaway is from this is that students with Holocaust education are able to report a greater willingness to challenge intolerant behaviors in others, which is a much larger Concept and much more complicated and nuanced concept than bullying. Bullying, in and of itself, is a term that I think is very individualistic, right? Like when I personally think of bullying, I think of like one person being targeted within a school type scenario, right? Whereas if you're talking about challenging intolerant behaviors, that is much, much bigger. We are talking about potentially like systemic issues, right? and problems of oppression within societies. What Dara Horn says in response to this is that, quote, These studies puzzled me. As Goss told me, the Holocaust was not about bullying. So why was the ECHO study measuring that? More important, why were none of these studies examining awareness of anti-Semitism, whether past or present?
3: Like, she seems to want over and over simple solutions, but she doesn't promote... Uh, or propose how to correctly talk about systemic anti-Semitism, um, and you know I, I think it's just kind of lazy. You know why 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 were none of the studies examining awareness of anti-Semitism, uh, whether past or present? And I I feel like it's kind of not even worth writing because it's sort of implicit in the survey to begin with. Uh, but yeah, I think the portrayal of, of echoes and reflections and Jen in general is entirely unfair here and willful.
1: Yeah, and I just want to go back to to this last uh, question that she asked. She says, more important, why are none of these studies examining awareness of anti-Semitism, whether past or present? I just want to quote directly mm-hmm. from Echoes and Reflections. It, they literally have a statistic right here yeah, the in word. the yeah. exact same study that is linked in the Atlantic article that says that those with Holocaust education are 27% more likely to recognize the dangers of anti-Semitism. Right, I knew
3: I'd seen it in here. I couldn't find it. But yes, you're exactly right. They, they literally say the word.
1: So I, that's not even saying that they know, have an awareness of it, but they can recognize it as dangerous. Right,
3: yeah. It's implicit and explicit in the survey.
1: Yeah, I. so it, it is absolutely false.
3: The implication that Echoes and Reflections doesn't do their due diligence, that they are um, doing the keyhole work that seems to be done in this exact article, is, yeah, totally false.
1: Absolutely. In that quote that I just read, where she says, why were none of these studies examining awareness of anti-Semitism? So there is a study that came out uh, pretty recently, and before this article, though, was released, where the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, is surveying uh, about 4,000 Americans to better understand attitudes towards Jews in Israel. And so the survey includes... ton of questions it's pretty long i will again link in in the show notes for everybody to read they essentially like are assessing if you have been taught about the holocaust if you have been taught or if you have any connection to jewish people how does that affect your perception of jewish people in the united states and every single point that i have looked at it reveals that If you have been exposed to Holocaust education and if you have been um, or if you have connection to Jewish people, which, again, I think Holocaust education does connect you to Jewish people like as well. Right. Uh, If you have either of those two things, then every single question, it makes you less likely to be anti-Semitic. So it's true data right Right. there in front of us, right? Right. So, I mean, that does go directly in opposition to her point. Yes, maybe it came out uh, a couple weeks after, and maybe that wasn't quite enough time to potentially, like, review it completely, review the survey completely. But at the same time, we're talking about The Atlantic here. Mm -hmm. The Atlantic... I do think, has the ability to pull an article to wait, to fact check, and to use the most current data. Especially one, and this is kind of one of my major points too, especially an article that is dealing with something that I think does have um, a lot of relevance in today's society. Anti-Semitism is on the rise, okay? Mm -hmm. So if Dara Horn is a essentially saying that what we are doing, you and I, Matt, what we are doing is making anti-Semitism worse, then I think there is an incredible responsibility to make sure that that is validated by research, right? Yeah, right.
3: There's very much a like, for for me, maybe this is the reaction you're describing as, like, prove it.
1: Yes, exactly. Are are we doing
3: it wrong? How? Give Give me one example. And I'm sure there is. Obviously, I mean, you've touched on this, like, all of us who work in this, work in any field, right? You're always striving, at least I'll, I'll make the assumption here, to do your job a little bit better. Of course, there are things I did in this job five, six years ago, 10 years ago that I don't do now, that I know better now. But just saying that isn't a point. You know, that's what I want from this article. I don't, I'm not sitting here saying this article shouldn't exist. I'm saying it shouldn't exist as it is. Alright, so my next one is another bad faith argument, I think, on her part. Um, She talks about, in Skokie, uh, at the end of the tour, the students are asked to take a stand. It's an exercise where they write a note and put it up on a board, how they're going to take a stand. I'm going to take a stand to be a better person. I'm going to take a stand to try harder. You know, whatever. Um, And she uh, talks about this very kind of negatively. And draws again a bad faith connection. It, essentially, I see it as a whataboutism. She says, uh, in the take a stand exercise, or in talking about it, the Nazis in Skokie knew how to organize. They'd taken a stand. Yeah, what what does that do for anyone? For your argument, uh, even speaking to the author, of course. Um, yeah, they do. So, what about Nazis taking a stand? Is your point then that we shouldn't be taking a stand? Like, of course. There are going to be groups that we know are hate groups or disagree with on moral and ethical and all of those grounds who can still be well-organized. The uh, well-organized stand-taking of the Nazis doesn't uh, discount uh, people who do it uh, in ways we do agree with, uh, whatever protest or stand that might be. Uh, So the point is just nonsense. So, okay, so they took a stand. What and what? Like it, the it, it, she seems to be implicitly drawing a connection between taking a stand at all, and we shouldn't take a stand because you know who takes a stand Nazis do. What? Yeah, I just I don't see it, again what she's attempting to relay to me that I should value.
1: Yeah. So to your point that you were making earlier, she mentions what she would like to see done yes. in Holocaust education, That's something. and she says, "quote." I want a VR of a night at the Yiddish theater in Warsaw and a VR of a Yiddish theater in New York. I want holograms of modern writers and scholars who revived the Hebrew language from the dead. And I definitely want an AI component so I can ask them how they did it. I want a VR of the writing of the Torah scroll in 2023 and then people chanting aloud from it through the year, until the year is out and it's read all over again, because the book never changes, but its readers do. Now, that's a lovely little construction (laughs) of sentences, right? But the overall argument that she is making in this entire essay is that what we are doing currently is making anti-Semitism worse. So how is the series of things that she just said going to make anti-Semitism better? Where is the evidence that will point us to the fact that having all of this, like, VR, you know, stuff about Jewish culture, and it might, okay? It might. But where is it? Where is the evidence of that? I don't see it. And if you don't present it to us, like, I don't understand, like, how we are supposed to take what you're saying just at face value, just because you're writing for the Atlantic.
3: (laughs) Yeah, the, the, again, it's it's so pie in the sky that these are going to fit this. This it seems to be her proposal on how to fix the the mistakes Sam that you and I are making. Yeah, you're right, but because we haven't thought to uh, have someone, uh, you know, a kid from uh, Eastern Henrico attend a bar mitzvah via headset.
1: Yeah, no, I, that, that's one you know. of my favorite quotes. Actually, she says, "quote I want a VR of a bar mitzvah kids in synagogues being showered with candy." <laughs> I mean, I would just be annoyed that there wasn't actually candy. Yeah, no, exactly. Like, I mean, okay, cool. Yeah, But like, at the same time, if you've been talking about you being Dara Horn, if you've spent this entire article arguing that we should not be doing simulations, is it us in a VR headset participating in a bar mitzvah when we're not Jewish and weren't necessarily invited to that bar mitzvah? Mm -hmm. Right. Like a bit of a simulation? I don't know. I
3: literally, I did. I laughed. Yeah. Uh, and also felt relief, because I saw the ending was
1: coming. <laughs> I, saw, I saw the little italicized blurb about
3: other books you published, and I was like, oh, here
1: we are. Oh, thank God. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, the ending itself, uh, maybe we'll get back to that in a second, the last paragraph, uh, yeah. because it is particularly self-righteous. It, it,
3: yeah, I, 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 please read it.
1: The ending to the whole entire essay ends with this paragraph, quote, I want to mandate this in regards to the VR uh, of the bar mitzvah with kids being Mm -hmm. showered with candy. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to mandate this for every student in this fractured and siloed America, even if it makes them much, much more uncomfortable than seeing piles of dead Jews does. There is no empathy without curiosity, no respect without knowledge, no other way to learn what Jews first taught the world. Love your neighbor. Until then, we will remain trapped and are sealed, virtual boxcars following unseen tracks into the future. It's just, I'm sorry, what a hell? It's It's, a, it's a, a, a
3: speech that a, a valedictorian would, would write and be like, I need something better. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, it's just flowery. Because I, I just don't know how you can be like, yep, that's the bookend that I needed. Because mm-hmm. she is bringing up significant points and major things and heavy things about the Holocaust and anti-Semitism. And then it ends with this very flowery, um, by the book, it's uh, you know, off the rack at CVS kind of ending.
1: It's very, I think, for me, if I had come to the end of an essay like this that was incredibly critical of many hundreds, thousands of educators in museums, curriculum creators. As well as educators um, in the classroom, you know, if I had come to the end of this article with some really pointed, well-thought out, maybe research-backed, I know that's a lot to ask, solutions to what she perceives to be a problem, then I might have been able to swallow that and actually take it into account and really to maybe evaluate hey i don't agree with some of these points but hey what about these good ideas you know and right. i can always make things better so why not incorporate some of this into my classroom but instead i'm just left with this feeling that she has written all of this for simply some sort of like fame for yeah. herself
3: it's yeah it's it's a congratulation a self-congratulation of her own like work mm-hmm. like look how many places i went even if it is entirely in bad faith, she can't truly believe that there is no Holocaust educator doing it right. Exactly. You know, and there's no acknowledgement of it seemingly in this that, yeah, this is all imperfect because pretty much everything is imperfect. And if it just ended even admitting, I'm not sure where to go from here, but I wanted to, maybe this will prompt something. Like maybe instead of patting herself on the back, she lays it out that collaboratively, maybe we can come up with something better And I think we could all agree with a conclusion like that, that there is a drawing board that needs to be gone back to for some things, or there's more work to be done, and we can't ever be satisfied, and that's okay.
1: Yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, in the beginning, I sort of mentioned that, well, at least she starts the article with a question, right? (laughs) And and so we do like that. Um, We love the use of inquiry in the classroom and in any type of learning. But, and there are no bad questions. But this is not a great question Mm. it's a question with an agenda and if she had simply asked why is anti-semitism getting worse Mm. now that's a question really worth exploring because why is it getting worse i am genuinely curious that is not answered in this article at all it seems that she has presented a question at the beginning of this article that she's actually already answered before she did any research yes, at all.
3: absolutely. Yeah, it's to get eyeballs and clicks mm-hmm. and again, what what do we do in its place?
1: At the end of my interview with her. I asked Kelly Zaney from the Illinois Holocaust Museum the titular question of this piece, is Holocaust education making antisemitism worse? Absolutely not, absolutely not.
2: I think that we as just
1: a collective
2: humanity need to have the courage and boldness to name what has been happening over the past four or five years, what it is. And there's a permission that's been given to this prejudice, this racism, this white supremacy, extremism in a way that I have never seen over my 21 years here at the museum. There's a reason why as an institution we're seeing a 90% increase in phone calls from schools reporting anti-Semitic incidents. This has never happened in the fervor and brazenness that it has happened over this. What is allowed to happen is that people in power, policymakers, have given these individuals permission. And when they're allowed to have permission, especially from an online format, when you look at the fact that anti-Semitic remarks on Twitter have gone up 105% since Elon Musk took over, because he has allowed individuals who got kicked off of Twitter back on He has dismantled the independent uh, body that monitored, right, hate speech. And then that is then directly correlated to individuals then being inspired and empowered to commit acts of vandalism and harassment and assaults. As I have seen young people from schools in the inner cities of Chicago, to the suburbs of Illinois, create student-led leadership groups that are specifically meant to create places for dialogue and conversations about difference, about race and racism, about ways that they themselves can be upstanders to contribute and make a change in their community. And they are being inspired by Holocaust education, and by the lessons of Holocaust education.
1: In our final minutes together, I asked Zany what she might say to educators across the country who have read this article. You know,
2: we could we couldn't do the work that we do as an institution. I think without the the re- not only our remarkable volunteers who day in and day out are working with both our student visitors and our adult visitor educators are making the decision to bring their students here, who we know are are teaching about the Holocaust, the young people, I'm in awe of your work. I know it is not easy. I know that it is a daunting and challenging topic to teach, but I have on that side seen the impact. Please, please (laughs) keep doing it because the young people that I have seen impacted by that education and impacted by that work are going to be extraordinary leaders. And the Holocaust education is a cornerstone of that.
1: Thank you for listening to Content to Classroom, a Virginia Council for the Social Studies podcast. And thank you to today's guests, Matt Simpson from the Virginia Holocaust Museum, Kelly Zane from the Illinois Holocaust Museum, and Jennifer Goss from Echoes and Reflections. We hope you'll see you next time and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Our handle is VA Social Studies, all one word, so you never miss anything from Virginia Council for the Social Studies.